Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Romans twelve nineteen through 13, 7. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. Isn't it good to worship the Lord together? I want to pray one more time and ask for God's help before we dive into this very important passage of Scripture. So please bow with me. Our Lord, we've already sung and prayed and confessed, but I just want to say again that you are good. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are good. You are light. You are love. You are truth. You are holy. Lord, Just like we sung, we want to say again now, we need you every hour, every moment, including this one right now. Would you forgive us for our many sins? Would you cleanse us by the blood of Jesus, your son? Would you fill us with the Holy Spirit and teach us now? Lord, I have prayed in private and now I pray again in company with my brothers and sisters here. I need your help to teach your word. Would you help me by your Holy Spirit right now? And would you help all of us to hear whatever distractions we may have going on in our hearts and minds and lives? Would you give us the grace to focus on Jesus and hear your word? Would you give us the grace to understand what you have said, to believe your promises, to obey your commandments? And for all of this, we want to give you glory, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. Pray these things through the precious name of Jesus, your son. And all God's people said... Amen. I want to invite you to join me in focusing my attention right now on Romans chapter 12, verse 21. The Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write these powerful words that we need to hear carefully this morning. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's a beautiful little sentence. That's a powerful sentence. It's short. We might as well memorize a Bible verse right now. Y'all want to? Repeat after me. 
family. Do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. Now, with these words, the Apostle Paul reminds us that every human life, including your life and my life, is lived in a war zone. We're in the middle of a spiritual battle between good and evil. We might be aware of that or we might be unaware of it, but it's true either way. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the language of struggle. That's the language of battle. There's a battle between good and evil. Goodness comes from God. God is good. And every good and perfect gift comes from above. God's creation is good. God's goodness is revealed to us most clearly in the person of Jesus, the image of the invisible God who came and lived among us. Evil is the Bible's name for the anti-God Forces in the world that would defy God and destroy God's creation. So when we talk about evil, we could talk about Satan raging against God. We could talk about world systems that would destroy humanity and would try to choke out the word of God. We could talk about the evil impulses within our own hearts that would tempt us to disbelieve the word of God and to rebel against God. But there's a battle going on between good and evil. And Paul says, do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. The first half of that verse is a warning to us. Do not be overcome by evil. Paul says this because with so much evil in the world, it's really easy for us to start letting that evil get inside of us without even knowing it. And that includes Christian people. Paul's writing to the church of Jesus Christ in Rome. So that's a warning for us. Everybody say that's for us. It's easy to let evil get inside of us. When we experience hatred in the world, isn't it easy to start hating? When we see so much greed in the world and we're bombarded every day by thousands of advertisements telling us if we just get a little more money and spend it on this or that, we'll be happy and secure. It's easy to start getting greedy. When people are cruel to us, it's easy to become bitter. I'm sure that there are several people in the room right now that, in the name of Jesus, you're trying to fight a root of bitterness in your heart because people have hurt you. Don't be overcome by evil, says Paul. When we live in a culture of sexual exploitation and self-indulgence, it's easy to start viewing bodies as something to be exploited for my gratification. Instead of viewing bodies as persons made in the image of God, worthy of being treated with respect. And since we're in the middle of a sermon series on public discipleship, might as well say when the political climate in our country is so filled with bitterness and rancor and self-righteousness, it's easy for us to start getting filled with bitterness and rancor and self-righteousness, isn't it? So the Apostle Paul warns us, don't be overcome by evil. In Christian discipleship, we've got to learn how to play defense. We've got to learn how to take up the shield of faith, put on the Helmet of salvation. We need to learn how to focus our attention on Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. How to live every day in intimate fellowship with him so that evil will look unappealing to us. 
We've got to meditate constantly on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God came and died on the cross for sinners and rose again so that you and I can be forgiven and reconciled to God, not based on how good we are, but on His grace when we simply trust in Jesus. We need to remember that because right after Satan tries to get us to sin, then he tries to get us to despair, doesn't he? He tries to get us to say, you're unworthy, therefore God can't love you. The first half of that was true. We are unworthy, but God still loves us. Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And the more we remember that grace and that forgiveness, the more it's like, I want to be close to Jesus. I don't want to do evil anymore. So Paul is calling us to battle, battle against the sin, play defense. But Paul's advice here is not merely to play defense, is it? Do not be overcome by evil. That's defense. You know, there's that little saying in sports, offense wins games and defense wins championships. Nobody told the Golden State Warriors that, did they? Listen, defense is very helpful if you can get buckets. You know what I'm saying? If you hold them to three points and you don't score any, you still lost. And in this text, Paul doesn't want us to stop with defense. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He calls us to go on offense. As Christians, we've already been forgiven through Jesus. We've already got a secure hope of eternal bliss in the presence of God in the new creation with resurrection bodies, worshiping Jesus, enjoying his presence, fellowshipping with one another. We're already victors in Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, you're more than a conqueror. And now he's saying... Don't stop with not being overcome with evil. You've got to go defeat evil with the power of good. What is he calling us to do? Paul is calling us to fight against hatred with the love of Jesus Christ. He's calling us to fight against deception with the truth of Jesus. That's true in our own hearts, but that's true in our world. Children and adults and youth in our community need to hear the truth of God's word, don't they? Paul calls us to fight against greed with contentment that comes from Jesus. What a mighty countercultural weapon it is when the people of God are happy to live on little and be generous. Fight against it. Paul calls us to fight against bitterness with the forgiveness of Jesus. Listen, saints, I said a second ago, I know there's people in the room that are struggling with bitterness because you've been hurt. But here's this powerful, liberating thing, liberating for you and for the people God's called you to love. As Christians, we don't have to hold on to those grievances anymore. Jesus died on the cross so we could be forgiven. Now we're free to forgive as we've been forgiven. Paul calls us to fight against despair with the hope of Jesus. You know what despair is? That's, that's when you start feeling like my life is too messed up. There's no light at the, the end of this tunnel. Despair is maybe when you start thinking... The ministry is hopeless. The world is hopeless. We've seen too many struggles, too many people we've been invested in for years, and then they made a bad decision and life went haywire. And we start to get hopeless. But Paul is calling us now, fight against that despair with the hope of Jesus. Jesus already absorbed the worst that evil could throw at him at the cross. He already defeated it in his resurrection. He already promised to come back and make everything new. So we don't have to give in. To the hopelessness, we can proclaim the hope of Jesus to our hearts, to our brothers and sisters, and to our world. 
Jesus calls us to take his justice and go fight against oppression. He calls us to take the word of God and the Holy Spirit and fight against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're called to proclaim the gospel so that lost people can be saved and be reconciled to God. Everybody repeat after me. Do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. We're taking some extended time to focus on this verse today. First of all, because the verse is just good, isn't it? But second of all, this is the center of this passage of Scripture. It connects the end of Romans chapter 12 with the beginning of Romans chapter 13. And those two were very related in Paul's thought and in the hearts and minds and experience of the Christians in Rome to whom Paul was writing. Romans 12:21 is a transition verse. It's a hinge on which Paul's thought turns. In Romans 12:21, Paul is summarizing what he had been saying at the end of chapter 12, which is why we got a few of those verses in our text, and he's introducing what he's about to say at the beginning of chapter 13. He's summarizing what he was just saying because verses 19 through 20 were all about loving your enemies. And leaving vengeance in the hands of God. Look with me at those verses. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Now he's going to quote a couple of Old Testament passages. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Sometimes when we hear Jesus telling us to love our enemies, and when we hear Paul saying, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And when we hear forgiveness, we start thinking, listen, if we live that way, then evil will remain unchecked. And Paul is saying, no, no, evil will not remain unchecked. You see, we serve a good and holy God. And wherever evil is recalcitrant, wherever it refuses to repent, God will defeat it. Evil will not continue forever in God's good creation. Jesus is coming back to forgive all who have trusted in him, but to throw Satan and all his forces into the lake of fire forever and to defeat evil and to judge wickedness in the earth. So Paul says we don't have to take that burden of judgment on ourselves. We can leave it in the hands of a gracious and holy God. And Paul says what we're trying to do is not fight against those bad people, but fight for those bad people the way Jesus fought for us. Leave the vengeance in the hands of God. Then he quotes this proverb. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, that last point reminds us that when we love our enemies, when we treat people who have hurt us with compassion, that might wound them. But it wounds them not to defeat them, but to call them to repentance. This is the wound of love. Which says, turn from your evil ways. It's a wound that strikes us in the conscience. If they don't repent, this is a wound which forebodes God's coming judgment. But our desire is that they would repent and experience his grace. So within that context, Paul says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's saying, Christians, you're going to get treated bad, but don't let the hate get inside of you. You respond with love. This is what Jesus was talking about. Luke 6, 27 through 28, Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Now, Christians, we may be so familiar with this teaching of Jesus and of Paul that we've forgotten how radical this is. Nobody thought this way before Jesus. Nobody talked this way before Jesus. This idea of loving our enemies and overcoming evil with good was a foreign idea. Just to give you an idea of this, let me read you a little quote from Tertullian in the second century, a couple generations after Jesus was on the earth, 18th centuries, 19th centuries ago, now. 
Tertullian was an African Christian writer, and he was frequently trying to explain Christianity to the rest of the world because Christi- Christians, that, that was still a small persecuted minority movement. People thought all kinds of crazy stuff about Christians. And in one of his letters, he was trying to explain, explain the Christian way of life, and this is what he says, to love friends is the custom for all people, but to love enemies is customary only for Christians. That's the radical Christian way of life. And we've seen that radical way of life erupt in human history in redemptive ways over and over. Since we're talking about public discipleship, we could talk about the civil rights movement right now, can't we? The civil rights movement was explicitly driven by this moral impulse. There is an evil of racism and hatred in American culture. We've got to overcome it. But our goal is not to humiliate our enemies, but to confront them with truth and power and a spirit of love so that they may be redeemed. That was the goal. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about in the famous quote, which shows up every Martin Luther King Jr. day on Facebook and on Twitter. Let me put it in context. In Romans, uh, excuse me, in in his book, Strength to Love, Dr. King writes a lot about the importance of loving our enemies. And he warns that when we're resisting evil in the world, it's easy to start out trying to fight evil out there. But before long, we're fighting it out there, but it's living inside of us. And he wrote this, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding darkness to a night already devoid of stars. And here's the famous quote, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Now, that's what the end of chapter 12 was talking about. To understand how this introduces chapter 13, we've got to put ourselves in the mindset of the first readers of Paul's letter. He's writing to Christians who live in the city of Rome. They are persecuted by the Roman government authority. As a matter of fact, a lot of what Paul's trying to address in this letter is tensions between ethnically Jewish Christians and and ethnically Gentile Christians that are trying to learn how to live with each other. Part of the reason for this is that the Emperor Claudius tried to persecute Christians but didn't really understand Christianity, so he sent out into exile just the Jewish Christians. He didn't understand that the Gentile Christians were part of the same group. So he sent those Jewish Christians out into exile. The Gentile church continued to grow on its own, and slowly over time, the Jewish Christians began returning. But now the forms of worship have become shaped by that Gentile ethnic identity, and they're having arguments about what kind of food to eat and all kinds of stuff related to that ethnic difference and the difference in their background. But it was the persecution of the church by the Roman authority that led to that problem. Moreover, the ongoing threat of persecution was constantly there for Christians in Rome. Indeed, history tells us that the Roman emperor is going to cut off the head of Apostle Paul. That's how he's going to die. So, undoubtedly, when Christians read this thing at the end of Romans 12 and think, Beloved, don't avenge yourselves. Leave vengeance to God. Love your enemy. Overcome evil with good. They start thinking about Roman government authority. The Christian community, when they start thinking about evil trying to overcome the church, they're going to think about Christians getting thrown into fight lions or be eaten by lions in the gladiatory games. If you want to know about how this Christian community had to deal with an evil, oppressive empire, just go read the book of Revelation, in which Rome, and in particular Nero Caesar, is depicted as 
a bestial anti-Christ force threatening to destroy the church. And the church has to be reminded over and over and over again, Jesus is going to win the ultimate victory over the powers of evil in the world. So the church, when they're hearing this business about don't be overcome by evil, they're thinking about Rome. They're thinking about that oppressive imperial force. Rome was a decadent city. It was an idolatrous city. It was a violent city. And the Roman imperial power oppressed all kinds of people, including Christians. So now these Christians are starting to think, okay, Paul says love our enemies. Jesus says love our enemies. So we've got to figure out how to love these Roman emperors and soldiers who are oppressing us. We've got to figure out how to relate to a civil authority that does evil. We need to learn from Jesus how to overcome the evil of Rome with the goodness of the gospel. So now Paul transitions to talking directly about the role of the government. Romans 13, 1 through 7 lays out some really important teachings about God's purpose for human government and the way that Christians are supposed to relate to the government. I'm going to read those verses and make a few comments as we go. And then we're going to make some observations about this. Just look at Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So we can already see here, Paul is saying to these Christians in Rome, it is true that the government authority in your city and in the Roman Empire abuses its power, but that does not validate you to say, I don't even recognize the legitimacy of this authority. He's saying civil authority, government authority is from God. So... While you're learning to respond to evil in the world, you've got to recognize evils everywhere, including in the government. But that doesn't free you up to be some sort of anarchist revolutionary. You need to recognize that God has a purpose for civil authority. He has a purpose for government. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. That's a good check for a church full of zealous millennials who care about God's justice. Because we got a generation that, like, our favorite morally good word is the word resist, right? It shows up in the bumper sticker on the back of our car. And we need to be clear. Paul tells us to resist something but not to resist other stuff, right? What do you resist? You resist evil. You resist evil. But Christians have to be more mature in our thinking than to think evil is out there and goodness is us and our tribe. Evil is everywhere and good is everywhere. Good is everywhere because God created this world. Evil is everywhere because the whole world has been marred by sin. And Paul is saying resist evil wherever you find it, including in the government. But if you just start having a bad attitude towards authority, that's not resisting evil. That's just having a bad attitude. So don't resist the authority itself, which is from God. He continues in verse three, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Paul's saying something radical here. And we would think you don't understand our struggle except for this is Paul. This is Paul. The, what if, the Romans have already done stuff to him like falsely accuse him and beat him with rods and throw him in jail. They've already wrongly imprisoned him many times. They're going to cut his head off. Does Paul know about tyrannical abuse of power? Yes, he does. He knows about being oppressed. He's not denying the reality that people in positions of power that are from God might abuse that power in ways that are opposed to God. He's already made it clear God's going to avenge that evil. 
But he says the civil authority has a purpose. Origen, the Christian writer in the second century, another second century Christian writer, he was going to be martyred and killed by the Romans as well. But when he wrote in his commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans about this passage, he compared what Paul is saying in this verse to the human body. He says rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And Origen said, listen, your eyes are from God and they have a good purpose to see. Your nose is from God. It has a good purpose to smell and to breathe. Your mouth is from God. It has a good purpose to speak. Now, there's a truth that your eyes and your nose and your mouth and all your bodily organs can be misused for evil purposes, right? But if you rage against that misuse by, like, cutting your face off, that's not going to solve the problem. People can misuse God's good gifts for his purposes, but Christians have to resist the misuse while affirming the good purpose. Tracking with that thought. So Paul's saying the same thing right here. Civil authority, government authority, when it's doing its job, is there to punish badness. We could cross reference, reference, by the way, first Peter chapter two, verses 13 through 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether the emperor is a supreme or governor is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So when government authority is doing its thing correctly, it punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous for, for the common good, which is what we see in the next verse. For he, the person in authority, the emperor, the governor, the Roman soldier who's a police officer in your community, he is God's servant. He's whose servant? For your good. Now, there's a couple of important things going on right there. One, we're learning the purpose of government is for the common good. It's for the good of people. It's to serve human life, not to exploit or oppress or take away wrongly human life. We're learning that. We're also learning that... Public service in any kind of civil sector or government sector can be a way to serve God by serving people. And we're also learning that every government authority is subject to the higher authority of God. Several important things going on right there. And Paul warns, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The sword here is being used to represent coercive power in all of its forms. And what Paul is saying here is something that I can relate to. I've had an experience. I'm ashamed to admit this. I'm not bragging. I'm just going to tell you the truth. Since I got my driver's license many years ago, I've had an experience several times of seeing a flashing light in my background and having a certain heart palpitation. Anybody had this experience? And I was pulled over. And the sword was wielded. Not literally, but metaphorically. I was coerced into paying Money to go to whatever. Our school system is all for a good cause, right? But listen, friends, I was coerced, but I was not oppressed. Do you hear that? I was coerced. Why did, why did I have to pay the fine? Because I was driving too fast. Is it good that that happened? Yes, it's good that it's happened because if fools like me drive around too fast all the time, somebody's going to get hurt. Right? So it's been a while. I'm, I'm confessing sin. It's been a while since I got a ticket. But I've had more than one and more than two tickets over the years. But what I'm confessing right now is it was my fault. It was my fault. So what Paul is saying is for the common good, even though anytime you have power and you have human beings in a position of power, human sin is such that human beings might abuse that power to hurt people. It's still good that you have the civil authority to restrain the force of evil in the world for the common good. Listen, on the south side, do we have some problems? Do we have some property theft? Do we have some senseless property damage? 
Yes, we do. I don't know if you've driven by our community center recently, but it's all tagged up. Trying to pay somebody to come paint that. Senseless. Do we have some problems with violence? Many of us have known the grief of going out to an apartment complex where we lead a Bible study and somebody was beaten or somebody was killed the day before many times over the last 10 years. It's grievous. Can you imagine what it would look like if there were not police officers out there? Police officers are out there to serve the Lord for the common good, to restrain the force of evil in our community. Are they always perfect? Of course not. But they have a function from God, which is a good function. So Paul's trying to illustrate for us here. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Not only to avoid God's wrath means if you break the law, God's servant is going to bear that sword to bring consequences to you. You might go to jail. You might avoid those consequences. But he's also saying as a Christian, it's not just about avoiding consequences. It's about honoring our conscience, meaning do what's right for the glory of God. Respect the law of the land. Therefore. Must be subject for these reasons. Verse six, for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them taxes to whom taxes are owed revenue to whom revenue is owed respect to whom respect is owed. Even if Nero is the one who's occupying the office, you need to respect the office. Honor to whom honor is owed. Okay, let's step back for a second. I want to draw some principles out of this. Let me just make a couple observations about what's happening in verses 1 through 7. First of all, we've already said most of this, but let's just summarize. God has delegated some temporal authority to human governments for the purpose of restraining the forces of evil and promoting the common good. Okay? That's point number one. God has delegated some of this authority to human governments, human civil authority for this purpose. Second point. God wants Christians to honor the role of government in a variety of ways, including paying taxes, showing respect for civil authorities, and obeying the laws of the land as long as they are consistent with God's higher law. Okay? So we need to have a respect for the civil authority in in a variety of ways. Here's a third observation. All government authority is subject to the higher authority of God in Jesus Christ. The, The government, the civil authority is God's servant. Which means that Christians can appeal to God's word in order to offer appropriate, respectful criticism of governments that are abusing their power. I'm going to come back and talk about this more in just a moment. And when Christians, here's the fourth observation from those verses. I'm going to connect it to verse 21 because Romans 12, 21 introduced this text. When Christians find ourselves in the position of needing to criticize the existing powers, we must be careful not to allow the evil of the world to infect our motives or our methods. Rather, we must seek to overcome evil in a way that spreads the goodness of God in our culture. Those are some observations about Romans 13, 1 through 7. Now I want to get specific and I want to get practical. Today, if, if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, let me tell you, we're on, in week three of four and a four week series on this theme of public discipleship. Everybody say public discipleship. So here's our big theme. We enjoy relationship with God as a gift through Jesus Christ. And that relationship we have with Jesus, we've been saying over and over, transforms both our private lives and our public lives. Because Jesus is Lord over the intimate details of my private life and he's Lord over every sphere of human culture. 
So as Christians, not only am I called to live with integrity and commune with God in secret, I'm also called to live with responsibility. Week one, we looked at Jesus in Matthew chapter five saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Don't hide the light. We've got public responsibility. We need to reject the lie in our culture that religion is something for the private private sphere. Jesus is Lord over public and private both. He's Lord over all. So now we're thinking about, okay, if we're going to step out into the public sphere as Christians, Christians live all over the world in all kinds of different settings. Some places where they're explicitly persecuted for their faith still today. Actually, there's been more Christian martyrs in the last 50 years than the first three centuries of the church combined. All over the world for decades, an average of about 100,000 a year, Christians have been killed for their faith. They have paid the ultimate price. And they've, when they've read Romans 12 and 13, it's hit really close to home. Their situation was much like this. Uh, there's parts of the world where Christians, much like the New Testament church, have no political agency. They can bear moral witness, but they can't vote. They can't run for office. They've got all sorts of difficult problems. We live in America. It's different here. American citizens have certain civil rights and, and possibilities. So we've got to ask the question, okay, how do we steward that Power for the glory of God and for the good of others. And I want to build on what we've been saying the last couple of weeks. Last week, we talked a lot about power from Psalm 82. Remember, if you've been given power, what does God want you to do? He wants you to use it to seek justice for the weak. He wants you to steward your power to bless other people. And now we're going to draw on Romans 13. I'm just going to finish today by making several practical observations about your discipleship and my discipleship as we live this out. You ready? Here we go. It's going to be kind of rapid fire. Take notes if you want to, or just listen and go listen again on the podcast if that helps. Number one, Christians need to have a high degree of grace, civility, and respect in all of our public engagement. This this last verse, Romans thirteen seven, is one that we really need to relearn. Give respect to whom respect is due. First Peter two talks about the same thing. We need to honor the civil authority. This is so important because we live in a culture in which the norm to do with the civil authority is to mock it, right? Doesn't matter who's in office. So when George W. Bush was in office, you turn on the TV, turn on the late night show, turn on whatever you want to, everybody's mocking him. When Obama was in office, everybody was mocking him. When Donald Trump is in office, everybody's mocking him. Whoever's in office next, we have a culture of mocking. Listen, friends, the Bible says some stuff about mockers and none of the stuff it says is encouraging. Okay. I'm not saying there's no place for satire. I think we see some satire in the prophets. But I think we've got to be really careful here because in so much of our mocking, we're really undermining the moral force of what we had to say. Maybe if instead of mocking, we stood up and with a humble, respectful, bold tone of voice says, I thank God for you serving in your office and I pray for you every day. But respectfully, I must say that these words that dishonor and degrade women are unacceptable. Respectfully, I must say, every unborn human being is made in the image of God and its life needs to be honored. Respectfully, I must say, immigrants are made in the image of God and sowing the, the cultural fears of xenophobia is anti-God. And we need to respect our neighbors and ask more careful questions about how to honor them with public policies that honor their sacred personality as a gift from God. And on and on and on. What if instead of mocking, we just got respectful and serious? Wouldn't that be a more powerful witness? So let's be more gracious and civil and respectful in our public engagement. 
Christians can and should. Here's the second observation. Christians can and should participate fully in the political process as a way of serving God and promoting the common good. Sometimes Christians start thinking, I got to keep myself unstained from the world. I got to not be overcome by evil. And so I'm not going to step into that political process because I don't know how to keep my hands clean in there. But thanks be to God, some of those people that we put on the screen in week one didn't do that. Thanks be to God, William Wilberforce, after he became a Christian and thought, I've got to leave Parliament to go join a Bible society or something, had friends like William Pitt or John Newton say to him, listen, if God has put you in this position of civil authority, use that power for good. He had friends like John Wesley write to him and say, the evil of the slave trade is like the greatest evil in our generation. If God has not called you to fight against the slave trade, then you better get out now because you're going to be devoured by forces bigger than you. But if God has called you to do this, then fight and don't give up and I'll be praying for you. So he stayed the course and he used that position of civil power and authority to overcome evil with good over the course of decades. And by the grace of God, the slave trade came down in the British Empire and it started a ripple effect that spread to bring liberation all over the world. So as Christians today, what is that going to look like? It's going to look different for a lot of us, right? For some of you, it might have to do with your career and public service. You need to be thinking about if there's a way to serve God in that way. It says right here, the civil authority is a servant of God for your good. Can you serve God in that role of civil authority? It's right there in Romans 13. We need more Christians doing it. For all of us, I would say whatever civil influence you have, even if you don't have the ability to vote, um, there's still ways that you can get involved in the process by having respectful engagement. We talked about some simple things last time, like writing your senator. Let him know that you're praying for him and sharing how your Christian convictions are affecting the way that you view various matters that are coming up in our society. Here's a third observation. Christians need to make sure our moral convictions are shaped by the scriptures and sound wisdom, not by any form of political tribalism. The civil authority is the servant of God, not the other way around. The civil authority is the servant of God. The civil authority and government powers and political powers do not determine good and evil. God already determined that. He already set the moral boundaries for the world. I'll talk a bit more about this next week, but let me just say here, I think it's something we need to hear again and again. There's a huge pressure in our society right now to have our consciences shaped by the political left or the political right. And what we need to do is have our consciences shaped by the word of God, which means as you're following the Lord, if the Lord leads you to some sort of civil engagement and you identify with a political party, that's wonderful. But you need to make sure your convictions are shaped by the word of God and you're willing to criticize your party respectfully with humility on the basis of that word. Which leads to my next point. If the government acts in a way that violates its God's given rule, Christians should fulfill our vocation to be salt and light by boldly speaking God's truth to the world's power. So we don't have an arrogant, rebellious attitude, but we do need to humbly and boldly be willing to speak God's word. Now, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of examples of this in the Bible. I'm just going to read you one for right now. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Listen, all the prophets of Israel were constantly speaking God's truth to the world's power, especially religious powers and kings. But listen to Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil 
and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What is Isaiah saying? Isaiah is saying injustice in the name of the law is still just injustice. And he's exercising his vocation as a prophet of God to speak that truth to those who have the power to make laws and to warn them. Don't use that power in a way that oppresses people. Now, Jesus is the great prophet, priest and king. And the New Testament teaches as Christians, we as a community participate in that prophetic, priestly and kingly vocation of Jesus Christ, which means we need to fulfill that prophetic role when necessary to speak God's truth to the world power. Moreover, when necessary, Christians may practice nonviolent civil disobedience as a way of upholding the truth that all human governments are subject to the authority of God. Nonviolent civil disobedience. That's what was happening in the civil rights movement, right? When there was an intentional decision to disobey segregationist laws because they were inherently evil. Now, that's not explicitly taught in Romans 13. The rationale for it is here because we're told the civil authority is a servant of God, which means there's a higher law. But that gives us the theological reasoning behind a whole bunch of stories of civil disobedience, including two that I'm going to mention right now. One from Acts 4 and one from Exodus. Acts chapter 4, the civil and religious authorities have gathered to tell Peter and John and the early apostles to stop preaching the gospel. And listen to how they respond. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So if the government tells you to stop believing in Jesus and worshiping Jesus and preaching the gospel, are you going to do it? No, No. that's nonviolent civil disobedience. But it's not just what we might call religious issues. There's moral issues that might be grounds for legitimate civil disobedience. Let's just remind ourselves of a story from Exodus that we studied a year ago, if you were with us. Exodus chapter one, the people of Israel are being oppressed by a pharaoh who wants to use them as slaves, but now he fears their numbers. And so in order to keep them in check, he gives the midwives of these Hebrew, these Hebrew midwives, the order, when a male baby is born, you got to kill it. And then in Exodus 1.17, we read this. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And the text goes on to tell how God rewarded them for their faith. They were not rebelling against civil authority as such, but they knew there's a higher authority. That's the authority of God. And because they respected the authority of God, they were submitted to his authority, even when it meant risking their lives to resist the government authority. This is really important. It's something that's come up a lot in Christian history. I mean, just think about Christians under the Nazi regime, people like Corey Ten Boom, who defied the government to save Jews from the tyrannical, genocidal, ethnic cleansing plots of Hitler. Think about people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who resisted even to the death the evil abuse of civil authority. However, to follow that up, Christians need to reject any spirit of rebellion that glorifies resistance for its own sake. If we have to criticize, if we have to resist evil, we need to do it in a way that is not rebellious. And finally, here's his last observation today before we go to the Lord's Supper. In all of our public engagement, Christians need to stay close To the cross of Jesus so that we are not overcome by evil as we seek to overcome evil with good. Why do I say that? Why do I say stay close to the cross of Jesus? Well, there's a whole lot of reasons. One of one of the reasons is 
it reminds us that we're not so great ourselves. It reminds us that evil's not just out there. We've got to fight the evil that's inside us. It reminds us that we've been forgiven for our sins. It guards us against the self-righteousness that would demonize political enemies. It keeps us humble. It also keeps us focused on the main thing. Hey, Christians, when we're talking about public engagement, we need to recognize Jesus is Lord over every sphere of society. But is sorting out the political problems in the world the main thing in life? Thanks be to God. Wouldn't that be horrible news if sorting out the political problems in the world were the main thing in life? The main thing of life is knowing God. And we need to be centered on the person of Jesus and on our relationship with God, knowing the world's going to still have problems until Jesus comes back. So our public engagement isn't some arrogant feeling of we're going to fix the world with our awesomeness. Our public engagement is saying until Jesus comes back, we want to bear witness to the kingdom of God by speaking about and embodying another way of life. So we stay humble. The cross also reminds us that hate cannot drive out hate. That coercive force may restrain the power of evil in the world, but it can't defeat it. But there is a power that can defeat evil in the world. And that is the love and the truth of Jesus Christ. It's through his self-giving love that Jesus overcame evil with us. When we're told, do not be overcome evil, but overcome evil with good, we're just told to do for the world what Jesus did for us. My sin made me an enemy of God. But God did not overcome evil by wiping me out like he could have. God overcame evil by becoming weak among us on the cross of Jesus Christ and dying for our sins. He overcame my evil with good so I could be reconciled with God. Now, in everything that I do, I'm living out of that gospel for the glory of Jesus Christ. And if the church of Jesus Christ can live out of that reality, then our public witness will be powerful. It'll be a powerful force. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to end today by worshiping you and by thanking you for your grace. We want to pray for government authorities in our own land. We pray for President Donald Trump. We pray for the Senate. We pray for the House. We pray for the Supreme Court. Lord, we pray for Governor Stitt. We pray for our Mayor David Holt. Those who are in positions of government authority where we live, would you, by your grace, move them to steward their power in a way that fears you, that honors you, and that respects the dignity and sacredness of all human life? For those Christians who live in parts of the world where they're persecuted for their faith, would you, by grace, strengthen them to be faithful, that the gospel would spread they would not be overcome by evil, but would overcome evil with good. And for those of us in here, Lord, we have many callings in life. Some of us, you're probably going to send, send to do missions and share the gospel and help plant churches in those persecuted parts of the world. Others of us, you may call to be stay-at-home parents discipling our children or to be people who in our office or in our warehouse or wherever we're working are sharing the gospel being salt and light. Some in here you may call to a position of significant civil leadership, public service, government leadership. But I pray for all of us here, Lord, that we would believe the gospel and that we would do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. That we would not be overcome by evil, but by your grace, you would use us to overcome evil with good. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.